Let's cultivate our motivation. And rejoice at this wonderful opportunity we have to encounter the Buddhist teachings and to have the time in our lives and the situation around us to study them and practice them. We could have been born as so many other different kinds of people due to karma. Because it all depends on what karma ripens at the time of death. So had a different karma ripened at the time of our last death, we could have been born in a very different situation. Maybe even in a situation of terrific suffering in one of the unfortunate realms. Or maybe in a situation of such tremendous bliss in an upper realm, a God realm, that we were distracted from practice. But somehow we got born as human beings with kind of the proper balance of suffering to remind us that we're in samsara and happiness that gives us some kind of mental space to hear and practice the Dharma. And yet this situation won't last long. So we have to really think clear, clearly about how to spend our time and with what kind of motivation doing the various actions. So our mind can always invent lots of things to gripe about. It's endless. Lots of things we don't like. Lots of things we wish were different. Lots of things we don't understand why people do things that way. On and on and on. (laughs) Or we can see these things as minor inconveniences and not make a big deal about them, but instead focus on what's really important, which is transforming our own mind and extending kindness to others. So let's develop the intention to do just that and to practice the Dharma in order to attain enlightenment so that we'll have the skill and compassion and wisdom necessary to be of the greatest benefit to all beings, including ourselves. So yesterday, after the talk, Venerable Penzenchoki asked if I thought that if uh, Tantra and monasticism are really compatible or not. So I've thought some more about it and uh, just want to share with you my latest thoughts continuing on this. 
one thing I really thought about. So you know, all because when she was asking the question, she was saying, you know, because of this thing about, you know, drinking and eating meat and, you know, the high yogis can kill people and go fishing and having sex and all these, you know, things that we hear, unconventional kinds of behavior that they do. And I was thinking about it and... You know, when I've um, studied Tantra and received commentaries on various sadhanas, they mention that kind of behavior in about two sentences. They explain the completion path, and they mention that, that thing of, you know, kind of unconventional behavior in about two or three sentences. And at the beginning, they'll tell some stories of great yogis act, acting in unconventional ways. But if you put all the time um, together, spent on talking about these unconventional ways, it's very little time. And yet, this is what our Western mind latches on to. And uh, I think I told you the, the story about the last monastic conference when this one, um, none from the Tibetan tradition was trying to explain that and you know, she was explaining it properly, but people weren't getting it, and everybody got really, you know, involved in this conversation. And, you know, again, when I've studied the Tantra, when they talk about it, you know, they'll, they give the majority of the teachings and the great length of time is spent on describing the generation stage, the visualization of the mantra, a, a lot of time spent on on. Uh, how to transform uh, death, intermediate stage, and rebirth into the path to the three bodies of the Buddha. A lot of time spent on how to develop um, serenity, shamatha, and how uh, and to do different vipassana type meditations to make your concentration very deep. Lots of time on all of that. But what does our mind go to? These things that are, are externally visible that constitute a few sentences. You know? And I find that that's so interesting, you know, because the whole Tantra practice is such an internal, internal practice. I mean, you're working with the subtlest level of the mind and the subtlest level of the body, you know, and even our gross mind is totally invisible. So, you know, the subtle, these subtle things are really subtle. And, and yet our mind makes a big deal about all these external things. Yeah? So it made me think that somehow we're missing the point of what the emphasis of the Tantra is really about. And, you know, and we're looking so much external to, you know, what are people doing? So that, that was one thought I had. And, you know, um, I forget which Lama said it, who, who was, was saying, externally appear as a shravaka, you know, like somebody on the, on the path, you know, some monastic. Huh? Is it something about the Greece monastery? 
Yeah, I can. I can't remember who said it. But you know, externally appear as as a shravaka, internally practice the Mahayana, and secretly do the Vajrayana. And that was kind of when I heard teachings the uh, the ideal that was set up. You know, for for a real practitioner to really practice. You know. The basic teachings in the Pali Canon, the Mahayana teachings and the Vajrayana in a very combined way while looking totally ordinary. Yeah. And so not making a, a, a big deal. And when I was thinking about these, these things, you know, in the two or three sentences that they mention about the unconventional behavior and also in the book that I was just reading, the thing was to risk social censor okay it was to take it was you know that in certain situations you know you took the risk but part of the Vajrayana path is not that you must you know throw the stuff in everything's everybody's face okay so one injunction on how to practice Vajrayana it's not that you must be unconventional. You must make people irritated. You must, you know, throw shit at them. And, you know, that, that's not one of the injunctions. That's not one of the precepts of the Vajrayana. Okay? <laughs> so it's more a thing that in certain situations, if, you know, you teach it because of the quality of your teacher, you know, they ask you to do something, or because of a certain situation, you know, that kind of behavior is permitted for somebody on the completion stage, okay, who has very high realizations. So it's, it's not that you must act like that in order to be a Vajrayana practitioner, okay? Because acting in an unconventional way does not necessarily free you of defilements, it's the meditation that you're doing on the Vajrayana that frees you from defilements. Okay, so we really have to remember that, you know. The whole purpose is to get the winds in the central channel and realize emptiness, you know, because you have this strong bodhicitta mind. That's the whole purpose of it, okay? And that's what everything's geared towards. And that's what you have to focus on if you're doing Vajrayana practice. So, you know, this other kind of behavior in certain situations, if it fits, you know, then you do that. But that's not what Vajrayana practice is about. I think my question wasn't even so much about all this crazy yogi behavior and the external behavior. My question, just to clarify a little bit, and you may have, a, you know, something to say about this, it was more just sort of the internal focus, like the Vinaya is so much about like subduing your desire and, you know, suppressing desire, etc., etc., and the Vajrayana is so much about using desire in the path, and I've heard even, you know, for example, in the Theravada, they focus a lot on meditation to go through the jhanas, and I've heard for Vajrayana practitioners, you meant not to go past the first jhana, because the higher you go in the jhanas, you lose your desire energy, so it kind of seemed like the focus of a lot of the Vinaya was about completely subduing your desire versus utilizing it in the path. And that's mm-hmm. kind of more 
what I meant, just that focus, not so much about all this crazy yoga yeah. stuff. Okay, well, just even in that focus, it's true. The Vinaya is really trying to get you to subdue the desire, and the Vajrayana is getting you to transform the desire energy. Mm-hmm. Okay? Not, but in order to transform the energy of the desire, you have to have some control over the mind of desire. Because if your mind of desire is bonkers, then you just act in a totally, you know, we all know what happens when our mind of desire goes bonkers. Yeah? So you have to have that control over that, that gross, gross desire. And then what you're doing is you're transforming the desire energy into the path. Okay? So, so if you have, for example, a monk or nun who is, doesn't have complete control of the desire and they're trying to practice, you know, their, keep their vows purely and then they're doing all these practices where they're visualizing a consort. It gets then, difficult. Yeah. And I, and I saw that happen sometimes. Um, with people. And this is why in the Tibetan tradition, when the monks are studying in the big monasteries, they are not, they're told not to take highest class tantra initiation. You know, I mean, this is exactly why. But in the situation of Westerners, they just give the initiations very freely so people are quite, who are quite new, who don't have control of this, take highest class tantra. And even the monks and nuns, you know, you're a baby monk and nun, and I, you know, I saw this in, in Dharmsala, what happened when, you know, people don't have the, this control over the, the gross desire, and you're doing all these visualizations, and it makes the desire come up, and you don't know what to do with it, and I think that becomes something that's quite difficult for the monastics, who are given highest class tantra initiation, and told to do these retreats mm-hmm. before they have the tools to work with the mind, mm-hmm. you know, or enough training to work with the mind and calm it down when this stuff comes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it just then causes a lot of, you know, because it does cause the desire energy to come. You're doing these visualizations, and then, you know, you're a baby monk or a baby nun, and, you know. So that you know, so you see the wisdom why the masters say don't, you know, why they treat the Tibetans one way, but for the Westerners, I think they just, I don't know what they think, <laughs> you know, kind of. Well, they just say it's such good karma to take these these initiations, you know, because then it plants the seeds for future lives, and you'll meet the Vajrayana. But they don't do that to any of the Tibetan monastics, not at all. Yeah. So, so I think there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it could be that in the West, because they're giving it to the lay people, mm-hmm. you know, plant good seeds and mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you really see the reason why we're told to practice the path in a progressive way. You know, first doing the, you know, the Pradimoksha Vinaya practice, then the Mahayana practice, then the Vajrayana practice. And, you know, they all, they all say, don't just go into Vajrayana right away. You know, it's, it's clear why, you know, because it brings up strong energy. If your mind is not strong. And then just to, to clarify with this, you know, because some people have the idea that in Vajrayana, then 
you can do whatever you want. There's no restraints. Actually, there's more restraints. If you look at the, you know, because you have not only, you know, your Pratimoksha vows, whatever level Pratimoksha vows you've taken, but you have the Bodhisattva vows, and you have the Tantric vows. And the, you know, the Tantric, they say the Bodhisattva vows just govern action, physical and verbal actions. Those are the easiest ones to keep. Yeah, the Bodhisattva vows already you're dealing with the mind and you can break them just on what you think. And the Tantric vows you can break just by what's what your thought is. Okay, so they're very difficult to keep. So there's actually more uh, restraint if you're practicing on that level. Yeah. So all this thing in the West of oh, there's less restraint. Na na na. Yeah. The one um, thing that you said about you know what jhana to go through. The, you know the the. Men- the monastic vows are designed, you know, to settle your mind so that you can gain jhanas. Mm-hmm. But even there, in the, in the regular, um, well, even the, the teacher in Thailand that I was studying with said it's best to remain act- uh, actually in the access, mm-hmm. you know, jhana, that that's the best one for gaining realizations. You know, so even there they say you may gain the different stages, you know, mm-hmm. and the abilities of them, but if you want to develop special insight, uh, then you don't go, definitely don't go into the formless mm-hmm. realms, and even in the form realms, stay at the lower ones, because those are better for, for gaining realizations. Mm-hmm. So, um, so then just some other thoughts about it. Um, That, you know, even in terms of of this, you know, unconventional behavior, it's, you know, what I was talking about last night, is very few people are actually at that level. Because in the Tantra, there's two stages, generation and completion. And to, to finish the generation stage, you have to be able to concentrate at a small vajra multiplying and contracting at either the upper or in a tiny minuscule drop either at the upper or lower end of your central channel for um, four hours without distraction. How many people can do that? Okay, so we're talking about very few people who are actually uh, capable, you know, who are alive are actually capable of doing the um, the the completion stage practice. And uh, we were talking yesterday about, you know, how there's different views on this and, you know, what level. And you do hear, and sometimes when they talk about the monastic vows, that if somebody is at this level and they can do this practice, then, uh, you know, then they don't break their tantric vow. But in order to, uh, they don't break their their um, pratimoksha vow of having sexual intercourse. But in order to do that for a man, it means that he doesn't ejaculate. Okay, so that's a whole other story, you know, that you can do that without ejaculate. And there's this whole practice. Well, I won't get into that. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's not something that that's easy to do and that that common you know most people can do and so in the last century i think there were only two cases of it 
And one case was uh, Sirkan Dorji Chong, and he was a monk in Gundanjangsi uh, Monastery. This is his incarnation, two incarnations down. Is, uh, I know him now. But um, the previous one, two lifetimes ago, so he reached this letter level, and the uh, 13th Dalai Lama told him that he should do consort practice, and so he disrobed and then did consort practice, you know. So um, so that was the, the situation, and, it, you know, it was all with the permission of his teacher and, you know, out of respect for the, for the monastic vows and not to con- confuse other people's minds. But what's interesting is his next rebirth and the rebirth after that are both monks. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I think those those were just you know some some other thoughts about that whole thing. Did you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was, yeah. There was just the more kind of subtle levels, really. Yeah. All the wild, really, yeah. Yeah. But you know, I. That's why, I mean, I'm just a firm believer, at, you know, start at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just easier if you start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I found it quite interesting because I've done some of the, the, the tantric visualizations and then also done some of the ones where, uh, you know, the asuba mm-hmm. practices where, you've, you know, you're thinking of the inside of your body and, what you know, and mm-hmm. the meditation on corpses and things like that. And it gives you two very different feelings, you know, whether you visualize having a body of a deity made of light or, you know, imagine your regular body the way it is. And so it gives you two different feelings. It's kind of interesting to explore. But, um, and to me it just shows like how much of how we feel about our body is just concept, you know. Um... But I think it, it's helpful in, you know, in this whole thing of, I mean, like with our body, to, first, first of all, in the Tantra, it isn't our gross physical body that becomes the deity's body. Yeah, so it's, it's, not, it's not this thing that becomes the deity's body at all. Um, but just even in terms of when you're meditating, which kind of body you, you think of yourself having, it produces different effects in the mind. And I think it's, it can be very useful to have familiarity with all these meditations because then, depending upon what you need to do at a particular time according to what's coming up in your mind, then you have the tools to be able to do that. Yeah. So if you're having a lot of rampant desire and your mind's just going nuts and your body's going nuts, these super practices are great, you know, at that time, visualizing yourself as Chakra Samvara, you know, if you don't have realization of, of emptiness and, and you're thinking of yourself as an inherently existent deity, boy, you know, your, your uh, desire energy goes through the ceiling. So at, at those times, uh, you know, meditating and thinking of the inside of the body and what it looks like when it dies and all of that and dissecting the body of the object of attachment, you know. It's very effective for the mind. It just cools you down right away. So I think when people have that kind of, a, you know, somewhat control over it, then, you know, later on, 
you can see where it makes some sense to do these tantric visualizations. Just some of my thoughts. I'm kind of old-fashioned when it comes to this. I'm like old-fashioned. Mama Tisha's good enough for me.